0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: If you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in civil conversation. You'll get more of it in After the Fact, a podcast from the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trusts. pewtrust.org slash afterthefact. I'm Arthur Brooks, and this is The Arthur Brooks Show from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode is about thinking small. You know, we're always told that we're supposed to think big in life. We're supposed to be ambitious. But what I'm going to talk about today is the cases in our lives in which thinking small is actually better. It's better for relationships. It's better for happiness. It's better for our personal effectiveness. And and for the purpose of this show, it's better for disagreeing with each other in a more effective way. The news today is almost always about big groups of people, big parts of the world. Most people consume their news on the internet and they hear about stuff that's not local, it's global. You know, that might sound like a real virtue, but that's actually hard for us to absorb. It's hard for us to relate to. You know, things like the budget deficit. The
0: CBO projects that starting in 2020, the US government will run a trillion dollar deficit again What's a trillion dollars? Like, what does that mean?
1: We hear about far-off wars.
0: It quickly turned violent, with protests spreading and Syrian security forces opening fire on crowds.
1: Thousands or maybe even millions of people are being displaced, and it moves our hearts to a certain extent. But it does seem like a lot of nameless and faceless people to us sometimes. I wish it didn't, but it really does. We hear about disasters all over the world, a hurricane, an earthquake. We hear about wildfires. This is now threatening close to 5,000 homes and businesses and it's just one
2: of 88 large fires scorching the nation right now.
1: That has an effect on us of making us feel like individually we can't do very much. It makes us feel demobilized. Social scientists would say that it it attenuates our sense of self-efficacy which is our ability to do things ourselves. And and furthermore, it does something that psychologists call psychic numbing.
0: If we get the statistics of thousands or millions of people, usually off at a distance, who are in distress, it may just bounce off us as, you know, it's just a number.
1: That's Paul Slovic. Paul Slovic studies human judgment, decision-making, and risk analysis. I've admired his work for a long time, so I invited him on the show to talk about this phenomenon called psychic numbing.
0: Psychic numbing is an insensitivity to the magnitude of certain types of consequences that one would think we would be quite uh, uh, sensitive to, upset about, outraged about, but instead these consequences have little emotional impact on us. Most often I think we see the numbing in the face of Consequences that are large in terms of number or distant in time and geography from us where the the information comes to us in the form of data, statistics, these sorts of things that uh, don't carry uh, an emotional impact because uh, we don't sense the reality underneath the surface of these numbers.
1: So if large scale numbers numb our brain, if they desensitize us, then the smallest numbers down to a single person or a single story or a single moment in time, they're going to have the most profound effect on us.
0: We call it the singularity effect. I mean, we will do almost anything to protect or to rescue an individual in distress, or even a, a small number of individuals if we, if we know their stories, if we have you know, vivid uh, images or news coverage of their plight, as as was so strongly demonstrated uh, recently with the uh, rescue of the boys in the cave in Thailand. They went missing after match practice. They'd explored this particular cave before, but were apparently trapped by a sudden monsoon flood. The boys are stuck
3: just past a cavern known as Pattaya Beach. The boys are about 400 metres after this spot and 800 to 1,000 metres below the surface.
0: We're swimming along an underwater passage. Wherever there is airspace, we surface. In this case, we smelt the children before we actually saw or heard them. How how many of you? 13? Brilliant. The final four boys and their coach made it out and were on the way to the hospital in less than 10 hours after the rescue began. The Thai Navy SEALs who had been with the team in the chamber followed shortly after. The one life uh, that is uh, in danger, you know, that if uh, there's some possibility that we can help, you know, we get galvanized by it and energized and emotionally connected and and we will uh, value that life greatly and do great things to try to protect or rescue that life.
1: I talked to Paul Slovic about what it takes to keep us from feeling overwhelmed by this sense of scale and how to overcome the feeling of helplessness.
0: You know, much of the time we feel that the problems are too big for us. You know, oh, this is terrible, but what can I do? And in that case, uh, it, it's understandable that people sort of turn away and they may be a little bit upset, but they don't act much on what's going on. It, what it means is that our feelings are not properly engaged by things that are large in a statistical sense, where the numbers of people are, are great
1: so it seems to me like what you're saying is when people are really upset about politics or policy, or world events or anything, that the key thing is for them to, be, to turn their attention to things that they can do. What do you think about that old axiom that we should think global and act local?
0: I, I think we, we should uh, think local too. I think we need to act locally, obviously, and also uh, to the extent that we can globally. We have to think slowly and more carefully about the information that we get about the world's problems. And And if the numbers are large, we have to not react intuitively with our feelings because our feelings won't don't get large numbers. We have to think try to think about the individuals beneath the surface of the numbers think about individual lives that uh, are are represented and also then to think about the possible uh, actions that could be effective in dealing with those problems there are things we can do we can for example we can support organizations uh, that are dedicated to uh, dealing with these these problems. Uh, we can support them uh, financially or with our joining and, and participating with them. That's one way to magnify our own efficacy by joining other organizations. We should also appreciate the fact that just because we can't solve a problem completely, it doesn't mean that, that what we do isn't meaningful. So you know, we have a saying that you know even partial solutions can save whole lives.
1: So basically, you're trying to empower people by, by helping people to look local and to look partial in the solutions that they deal with in their lives, right?
0: Yes, you might call it uh, think small. Small is not necessarily bad. Small can be an individual life. What we found was that our, our feelings, as effective as they can be in guiding us through our daily lives, don't do numbers very well. You know, if you care a lot about one person, you won't feel twice as much sympathy or motivation to help two. And the feeling system doesn't have, can't ramp up that selectively. And that one life that is so important, if it's the only life in front of you, seems to lose its value as the numbers increase. But our brain, the modern brain, is capable of doing arithmetic that doesn't rely on feelings and can see that there's one more life there that is as important as if it were the first life.
1: Tell me then about how you would apply all of this to a big problem that we have today. I mean, I talk to people constantly who are completely wound around the axle about politics. We all have political opinions, of course. So what does is, what is your work tell us about how we can deal with the problem of polarization and, and contempt in our culture of politics in America today?
0: Well, I would hope that we would focus on the uh, issues that we are disagreeing about, whether it's uh, gun control or abortion or foreign policy, that we, we would look not at what other people are saying about it, what our friends are saying about it, and what the media that we tend to prefer are saying about it, but to think carefully about the issue, to try to understand what the problem is and how the different sides uh, feel about it, what their perspectives are, and to uh, respect the other views. I think that's that's all we can do. We end up disagreeing, but we we need to try to uh, be respectful of the disagreements and think slowly and not, not quickly and emotionally, but to try to take your time and think slowly as opposed to uh, your quick gut reaction.
1: We're going to take a quick break now so I can tell you about our sponsor. We'll be back in a moment. We're back talking about thinking small. So we've been talking about psychic numbing and the problem of large numbers when it comes to relating to other people in in, in a pretty academic context so far, the, the theories of these things. I also want to talk about it in this show in the case of real people who've tried to fight this problem. Now, a few years ago, I remember listening to National Public Radio one morning, and they were describing a project that really, really caught my attention. It was from the famous journalist James Fallows from The Atlantic and his wife, the author Deborah Fallows. They were going to take a little single-engine prop plane around the country. Their plan was to travel 100,000 miles over years and years and to visit towns and little cities All over the map, all over the the United States, places where where people don't generally go for tourism, where people who live on the coasts, they may have heard about, but they've probably never seen, because they wanted to meet the people in those places and talk to them about their ordinary lives, see how they were solving problems, and and see whether or not things were better or worse than in Washington, D.C., or just simply different than in Washington, D.C. What they found in real life was the virtue of thinking small. What did you want to achieve when you set out on this, besides just entertaining people like me who thought it was a cool project?
2: I think we just wanted to, to see. I, I did a piece in The Atlantic a month or two ago about the project saying that reporting is the process of learning what you didn't know until you showed up. And so, I think just showing up and seeing what it would be be like, and we had been living in China for a number of years before, right before this, doing reporting for The Atlantic, and we tried just there to be constantly on the road to the interior of China by buses, by carts, by horses, by whatever means we could be, just to see what it was like away from the big cities. And so, we, we thought it was time to do something like that in, in the U.S. And we had a long enough background in flying around the country to have a sense of just how much there was there? So you land in a town, Town X.
1: You find an airstrip and you get out of your plane. Where do you go? And what do you do?
3: It's a fun process. We did, before we actually landed at that airstrip, we tried to do a little homework. And we'd usually land on a Sunday afternoon and go into town and prepare. Monday morning, we'd go out together to see what we call the usual suspects. We'd go down to the city hall, try to meet the mayor. We'd go by the newspaper office and if there was one and there usually was to talk to the editor or somebody there the reporters on the local beats to find out what are the interesting stories in town who are the people we should see what are the interesting who are the interesting people who drive this town we'd go to the something like the chamber of commerce or the business development people to hear a little bit and then tuesday we'd usually fan out in our different directions jim would talk economics and and town development and and political issues and and tough stories of the town and I'd go to the schools and the libraries and spend time in the classrooms with the teachers and talking to the librarians who are a tremendous source of what's really going on in the town. We just kind of followed the breadcrumb trails and around about Thursday we'd think we're never going to finish in this town. There's so many stories often in different directions from what we started out or had a hunch with, it led us in really interesting, completely surprising directions. And then we'd either stick around for another week or go away and plan to come back for things we hadn't done. And and sometimes we'd come back two or three or four times even.
2: Yeah, we usually spent at least two weeks on the city in the cities that we wrote about in some detail. And it was always important for us to go to the local news office just to pay our respect two people there, and sort of we're not here, we're not the experts from out of town coming to tell you about your your city, but rather we know that you are the people here at the Dodge City Daily Globe, for example, or the Sioux Falls, Argus, whatever, Argus leader, saying you know about the city in in depth. We'd like to just understand what we could about the things that are obvious here, the things that are, you know, still mysteries, what's the story of the town, but we basically wanted to show the opposite of kind of Bigfoot um, presence in town, wanting to to learn from them initially.
3: And it was was surprisingly easy to do this in a very anonymous, low-key way because people just love to talk about their hometowns and they're interested if somebody comes asking about them. Like, why are you here? Why are you interested in my town? And they'll... They will happily talk for a long time. so we didn't we didn't feel like interlopers. We didn't feel like intruders. We as Jim said, we weren't big footing and saying, "Oh, we're here from the Atlantic."
2: We are distinctly in the reporter rather than social scientist mode. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it was – we we didn't know how long we'd start doing this. We we started in the early summer of 2013, five years ago, as, mm-hmm. as we're talking now, going to uh, Holland, Michigan, and then Sioux Falls, where we spent a, a long time. And just saying uh, Holland is now famous as Betsy DeVos's hometown mm-hmm. – and it's actually now a majority Latino community with lots of interesting dynamics. there. They make furniture there. They, they do. make, yeah. they make super right. upscale office furniture. Right. All the best Indeed. office furniture places are yeah. in Holland, Michigan. Which was, as a side note, when we were there, it was it was one of the rare times we saw national politics intruding on the local level. Not about education systems, but the um, the state of Michigan was pushing some restrictions on gay rights. Legislation then, uh, and all the furniture companies were opposing that, uh, saying this is going to affect our international business and our international recruiting. Uh, and so, I think that Holland finally they had a cliffhanger vote in the city council, and they rejected this the restrictionist measures in a very conservative town because their leading industrialists were saying we need to be open to survive. Um, my uncle was the mayor of a little town in Oregon. And it was... Which
1: one was it? Redmond, Oregon.
2: Oh, of course, we, we, were, we there. were there. Yeah. We were <laughs> it's a, there. It's a wonderful yes. place. A big aerospace
1: renaissance going on there. It's a wonderful place. And my uncle was... his has strong political opinions, but not when he was mayor. When my uncle was talking about the sidewalks or water... He wasn't partisan at all. Now, people disagreed in his little town all the time. They had city council meetings that people were yelling at each other, but they weren't talking about the sort of pseudo-religious stuff that we're talking about at the very abstract level of national and international ideology. It was the, the localism per se actually changed the tenor of the disagreement and made it, you know what,
2: it made it better. What was I seeing? So, So you were seeing something almost identical to what we saw in Redmond and Prineville and Bend. So, what we observed is that, number one, at the local level, people had to solve problems rather than just defeat the other side. There had to be something done with the schools or the riverfront or the playground you were building or whatever. So there was a tangibility to things. Second, you saw people as human beings. You know, you would discuss something in the city council meeting, you were likely to see that person in the months and years ahead. So again, it wasn't this, this abstraction. And we saw lots of places that have on the national spectrum, really right-wing views right now. We're also very inclusive of a range of human conditions, especially refugees and immigrants. Mm. In Western Kansas, we have a whole riff about Dodge City, Kansas. Their city chief financial officer, a beloved figure named Ernesto de la Rosa, is here on a DACA waiver. And the the Anglos of Dodge City voted for Donald Trump, but also are protecting Ernesto.
1: It seems like a contradiction, but, but in fact, it isn't. I mean, we have a tendency to think that people will, through their pieties, will say that they're not racist, but then they'll behave in very racist ways. But the data show exactly the opposite, mm-hmm. that people will often say that they have animus toward particular groups of people, but when they see them, they see brothers and sisters. And so when you get people together at the small level, not the large level, people are more decent to each other, they're less racist, they're less bigoted, they're, they actually have more love. Is that what you found?
3: Love, yeah, I, I guess you'd say love. Certainly more getting along together than being contentious with each other. The kind of language we heard in Sioux Falls, which is 10% of the schools are are refugees population. In Erie, Pennsylvania, 10% of the town has a refugee population. Many majority Hispanic towns that were like Dodge City were not that way traditionally. The language that you hear is... We are all better for it. You know, we're going to get along and it makes us stronger in the kind of we all rise together. You hear words like collaborate, cooperate. It seems to be the human motivation to want to get along with people, (laughs) even if they're not like you, because this is where you live. You know, this is where you raise your children. Everybody's in this together.
1: Mm. But it's so—so help me understand the cognitive dissonance that that you get when when you find in in Little Towns people who are actually getting along, but voting and acting as if they're not. What's the deal? I mean, when people are basically saying— build a wall, build a wall and chanting at a rally, but at the same time, their neighbors are from someplace in Guatemala, and they you saw with your own eyes that so they get along pretty well.
2: There's a particular oddity of the build a wall sentiment, which in our observation is entirely confined to places where no refugees or, or immigrants actually are. But on the the basic, on the larger cognitive dissonance point, my premise for the moment is that A natural tendency of people, in fact, is to be reasonable. But something about national politics now has made it religious and abstract and hate-driven and symbolic. We found in the very rare cases when national politics came up in our travels, which we never asked about, then suddenly people would switch into this angry cable news accusatory tone, which wasn't part of the rest of their discourse. What you're
1: saying is that political tribalism occurs at the abstract level and is sort of unsustainable when it's human to human? That is
2: our experience. And So, so give me a story. So
3: Sioux Falls, South Dakota, South Dakota is full of Germanic people. Mm-hmm. It's very, very white heritage. Sioux Falls has been accepting refugees since the Vietnam War. Right. One after another, after right. another group, a lot from Southeast Asia, but also more recently from Somalia, the Sudan, all over Africa, and Bhutan and Nepal. The iterations of how this town accepts and embraces refugees is is very interesting. Each new group who comes in is a challenge because they're different, their customs are different, their education, their backgrounds are different. In the schools, you have kind of rolling admissions because you never know when these kids are going to show up. So they have a very sophisticated program of entry, immersion schools for the kids, where they have there are 60 different languages spoken in the schools in Sioux Falls. So the, the translation process, when somebody new comes in, it's like that telephone game where I'll tell Jim something and he'll in English and he'll tell it to you in French and he'll tell it to you in German and then it'll come back. But it's never those languages. You know, it's African dialects mm-hmm. and so forth. There was a, one family I met from South Sudan, from Darfur. They had literally walked across South Sudan and spent a year or two doing that to get out of Darfur, were sent to camps and finally made it to South Dakota. And there was a girl who was about a junior in high school. She was 16 when I met her. And 10 years ago, she had walked across South Sudan with her family, gotten separated from them and lost, reunited miraculously in a camp, and was back in Sioux Falls. She wanted to join junior ROTC which she did, because she liked the camaraderie, she liked the military history, she liked the activities in it, she liked dressing up in her uniform, and there was a major problem for her, an apparel problem, because on Fridays when you put on your dress uniforms, she wasn't allowed to mix that with her hijab, with Mm. her traditional Muslim headwear, Mm -hmm. right? So she had to make a choice, which was, of course, she wouldn't wear her uniform, and I was there with one of the teachers talking to her family about this, and the administration was really surprised. They'd never heard this before. And the teacher brought it to the ROTC guy who brought it all the way up through the chain of command into D.C., and they changed the rule for her. Hmm. And they changed the rule for all of the, the right. Muslim kids in Junior Razi who did that. And, and that's just an example of the basic sidewalk level of issues that are surprising that comes with such different cultures to a town like Sioux Falls and how they deal with it and how they address it.
1: So there's a, I think it seems to me that there's a kind of a broader lesson from this too, which is that if we actually had some sort of national debate about the hijab and our junior ROTC, it would become this flashpoint. It would become right versus left. Yeah. It, it would become like this culture war. Mm-hmm. This is one of the key insights that you're bringing to this that, that that you can bring to the rest of the country. If when we localize these things, they become human issues. When you globalize these things, or when you nationalize them, they're not human. They're they're sort of more sacramental in their way. They're more representative of broad uh, of of abstractions. The point is, at the local level, when you think small, people aren't abstractions. And when people aren't abstractions, that's when we can know each other. That's when we can actually love each other. It's hard to love an abstraction. It's kind of easy to love a person, right?
3: And another problem that they solved, not just for this one young woman, but for all the Muslims, the teachers started noticing that during Ramadan, these kids were fasting, and they were sitting in the cafeteria watching everyone else eat. Hmm. So the administration thought, well, this is pretty cruel. Let's at least let them go to another room where they can talk with each other and not have to watch everyone else eating. So it was easily solved. Yes, they did it.
1: It seemed to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that the tone of this project got more optimistic
2: as the years went by. I think the deal was more of the sort of the arbitrage or the cognitive dissonance and difference between what the country people were reading about in national stories and the country we were seeing Uh. city by city, that that, that gap. And there was a – I was at the Republican convention in Cleveland two years ago, and there was a story that stuck in my mind at the end of it. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, maybe Politico, but the headline of the story was, GOP delegates say economy is terrible – except where they're from. And this was essentially the difference. So I think it was that gap, which was more and more in our minds. We're seeing more things. We are seeing patterns. We're saying, hey, pay attention to this. It's different from the American carnage you're hearing about. No matter what your national political views are, there's all these places where people feel like they're they're figuring things out and getting along.
3: And I think also, after we'd been to about six or eight cities, we— at first, there was this gee whiz factor, like, gee whiz, look what they're doing in Sioux Falls. By the time we got to, went through, up through the Northeast and down to the Carolinas, it was, hey, they're doing the same thing here in Greenville. It reminds me of what they're doing in Burlington or right. in Eastport, Maine. So the patterns were starting to come out. They each had their kind of local twist to it. It was patterns. and and. Certainly, that's part of what made us optimistic, that it wasn't just a one-off event that we were seeing from place Mm. to place, but it was a fabric.
1: This actually weirdly seems to fly in the face of what a lot of people think about what's going on now in sort of small-town America and places off the coast, because we get article after article in the press about opioid abuse. That's a, a problem that everybody can regret. And and so square that with me. I mean you come back so optimistic and so in love with America, but everything's not so great all the time, right?
2: Of course. And so every problem people think about is is a real problem. Our two points of emphasis. Number one would be direction do people feel as if they are moving in a positive rather than negative direction? And our anecdotal experience, I think, is backed up by most polling data showing that most people feel their own communities are moving ahead rather than backwards, Mm. like by a 75 or 80 percent margin. So direction is, is one. And I guess the other is a sense of agency, that most of the country is not portrayed as if people have control. They are sort of bystanders and extras in the large global forces of lives, as opposed to being the central figures in their own lives, their family lives, their communities' lives. Mm. And so, yes, there are forces too big for anybody to deal with, like the Dust Bowl or like Mm. the 2008 Depression. But there is a sense, most people, of just what can we do here to make life in Dodge City better?
1: You know, it's funny, though, when I'm in, in my hometown of Seattle, I remember right after the 2016 election, Donald Trump got, you know, four or five votes in the city of Seattle. <laughs> and um, and I was talking to somebody who was super wound around the axle about what this was going to mean for democracy, what it was going to mean for sort of everything. We're doomed. We're doomed. And I asked, so on the same day, who won the school superintendent's election? And he didn't know. And again, there's national policy that does affect people at the local level, to be sure. But... But not nearly as much as the man or woman who's running the Seattle public schools. I mean, that's a
2: really big deal. Yeah. And so, what do we do? Yeah, Twenty plus years ago, I wrote a book called Breaking the News. You know, back mm-hmm. in what then seems now seems like an innocent era of <laughs> of the media before cable news had really taken off, and cautioning about what would happen if we didn't maintain the separation between news and entertainment, because if they became merged. Entertainment would always win the battle for attention because that's what entertainment is for. It's supposed to be interesting, and news is supposed to be as interesting as it can be, just as education is supposed to be as interesting as it can be. entertainment
1: is, you know, pie, and and, and, and news (laughs)
2: is broccoli. The job of journalism was to make the important interesting. It wasn't just entertainment, although you had to do it as well as you could, but that if you had things where the criterion was purely whether this was interesting, then entertainment would win because the OJ chase would always be more interesting than a tax bill.
1: So tell our listeners what they should do about their news consumption habits starting today.
2: Here's something where I will sound like a hypocrite, but um, that's the modern condition. I think that um, (laughs) or the human condition, cable TV and most panel shows objectively make you less informed and angrier. Reducing cable news, discussion show consumption, even though I go on some of those shows and I like a number of the anchors and all that, I think that it's structurally set up to make people angry. Uh. And so, Reducing consumption of that is a positive step. It sounds um, feeble, but I think it's true. But but to actually subscribe to publications, um, you know, it's not much money to subscribe to a local newspaper or a magazine.
3: Let me talk about libraries for a minute, because one of the things that we saw in so many town libraries from place to place are the education efforts, particularly for preschool children. Kids are going to school, to kindergarten, whatever it is, unprepared. The director of the public library in Columbus, Ohio, when I said to him, Well, what does reading readiness mean? He said, Reading readiness means when a kid walks into kindergarten and you hand him a book and he holds it upside down because he doesn't know what to do with it. So they address that specifically by creating different programs in their library, which are very people intensive. So if you care about education or if you care about little kids or if you care about your neighborhood, You can go into that library and volunteer to be part of the homework brigade that helps kids come in there to a safe place after school, or teaching adult literacy. There are so many places and so many programs where towns are responding to their particular local need where it's easy to engage as a normal person and actually right. do something. And, you know, talk about happiness. Everybody knows if you're part of all this, you get happier because you feel this gratification. You've done something good for someone, yeah. and it makes you feel good. It sounds
1: just way more fun than watching a cable news show where everybody's right. yelling at each other, too. I mean, that's just—
3: And you know what they're going to yell about. You just you see a face, and you know the words that are going to come out of that yeah. mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I would actually challenge your listeners to, the next time you get in your car and go to some small town you haven't been to before, go to the public library and go in there and just say, hey, I'm interested in your library and can I have a look around? And then just start asking, what's going on here? You know, what what special programs do you have? And it leads to this conversation of what they want in that town or what they need in that town.
1: When you visit a few hundred communities or a few dozen communities you you come up with a bunch of stories and it's pretty easy to see these as disconnected narratives disconnected and isolated experiences How do you connect them and how do you see the greater significance in those things without just basically saying, look, I mean, Deb and Jim Fallows just came up with a bunch of really charming anecdotes about middle America, but it doesn't really say anything about the national
2: experience. There is this sense of action around the country, but people feel as if each one of them is isolated, just doing something lonely and maybe embattled because the rest of the landscape is so troubled and forbidding and stony. And we're trying to suggest that, yes, there are troubles and stoniness and forbiddingness and everything else that is part of the modern condition nationally and worldwide. But if people recognized how many others like themselves are wrestling with the same ideas and having some successes, and if they could share some of the lessons of what's working and what's not and have an awareness of being not just on their own that the the sense of satisfaction of agency and efficacy can spread beyond your own household to thinking that there is, that the wind is at your back. So I think connecting the stories is something that we are trying to, our our next stage is trying to figure out how the leverage can shift and people can think they're not just alone in what they're doing.
1: Our team at AEI is CeCe Gallagly and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, our producer is Galtham Srikishan, who also composed our theme music. Golda Arthur is senior producer. And Nishat Kirwa is executive producer of audio. Get in touch with us. You can email us at arthurbrooksshow at voxmedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at Arthur Brooks. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whichever podcast app you're listening to. Find a friend you disagree with and get that person to listen to the podcast with you. And both of you, please subscribe. Most of all, thanks for listening. For 70 years, the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trust has researched the data and the facts that promote civil conversation and lead to innovative policy solutions. Now is providing some of that civil dialogue in a podcast called After the Fact. In each episode, Pew shares a surprising stat and a story that help illuminate the issues that matter. Listen at pewtrust.org slash afterthefact or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your favorite programs.
3: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week, I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing the world. I interview tech execs like Apple CEO Tim Cook, political figures like Anthony Scaramucci, and media personalities like sex therapist Esther Perel. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. See you there.